My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Cade Onder, who you could find at ComicBook.com, writing about video games. We're also joined by our halfway house midwife <laughs> of a co-host, Brandon Katz, who has been on the I show. love that description. Yeah, that was, I was literally thinking about how to start this show today. And it's like, you're not a co-host, you're not a host, but you've been here for, I don't know, almost six straight weeks. So like, I've got to figure out something to call you. Uh, so Perfect. you're now like the halfway house. <laughs> you know what? It's not the worst nickname I've ever had in my life. Who you could find over at Parrot Analytics telling entertainment companies what to show and give us this. Right, Brandon? Is that a, sort of a fair assumption of what you do? Yeah, more or less. You know, I'm I'm helping advise studios and entertainment companies on like what to invest in and, and what strategies to do and working with fellow media members and getting them cool data to talk stories about. So, you know, a, a lot of yep, different things. Yep. So we've got a plant on the inside, y'all. There Don't we go. Uh, all right. <laughs> and uh, so, and the show, as I should say, is consisted of two guys who have had a public interaction with The Rock on Twitter and one loser who has not. I don't even know why we have to bring other people down. <laughs> it was very no, cool kidding. to see that today, Eric. Very Kate, cool. Kate, as, as you know that I think and feel, and I've said on this show, you were at a remarkable place for your age, and that's a total joke. Uh, <laughs> if you don't follow me or Brandon on Twitter, a few years ago, Brandon had an awesome interaction with The Rock where he made a bet about what film? It was a couple of his different films and what, you know, box office levels they would reach. Just just long story short, I had pointed out some box office stats about how consistent The Rock is commercially. And I tagged him in it, not thinking anything of it. And uh, he, he responds like, wow, I didn't even know about that. Uh, so let's make a bet for the next couple films if my, if my uh, movie reaches that benchmark that I had pointed out then I'll buy you a bottle of tequila. And I said, absolutely. You know, if, if it doesn't, I'll donate uh, the equivalent amount in, in, in to a charity. And uh, so, you know, both, both of those bets hit. I still donated to charity because I'm a good guy. <laughs> and uh, no, the, the Rock made good. He, and this was before he had his own company, but he sent me I was just going to say that. It was oh, before he was yeah. doling out bottles of his own stuff for free. Yeah, so he, he sent me over some, some Don Julio, uh, which was pretty pretty good. And, yeah. and you know, The Rock's a man of his word and he's a, he's a good dude. So this past week, I saw a few of the people that I respect very highly in this business had had the Black Adam junket over the weekend. I had reached out to Warner Bros. in late September, and they told me that I had missed the boat and was too late. So that's my fault. I'm going to take that one. And now I've learned, and I'm going to reach out sooner. So today, doing the same thing as Brandon did, I just kind of posted on Twitter saying, hey, I'm bummed that I missed out on the chance to speak to The Rock. I've been a fan for, I don't know, since the year 1999 at this point. I mean, literally before Cade was born. Um, And and I posted a photo of me wearing one of his WWF, not E, F branded shirts from at least 2001 or two. And The Rock responded and said he's going to get me into the UK junket that is coming up in the next few days and or weeks. So keep an eye out for our interview with The Rock coming soon. Now that that is out of the way, let's get into some of our main topics of the week. As I said, there's no news, but we are going to check in with She-Hulk. As promised, we would do so when Daredevil finally made his appearance. He did so in episode eight. Kate? Uh, Yeah, real quick. Do you you want to talk about the Marvel delays? 
No, because we don't have to. they're just, always doing ask. that shit. Sure. Yeah. And <laughs> I'll keep that in. That was us talking about the Marvel delays. <laughs> Good. Got it covered. There you go. <laughs> uh, yes, it was all right. episode so, Kate, I would like to thank of you as the biggest Daredevil fan on this podcast. So yeah. I would also like you to lead this part of the conversation. Sure thing. So uh, we all knew Daredevil would be in this show. Uh, it was leaked a long time ago, and then he was obviously in the trailer. Uh, and he finally made his debut in the, I think they call it the penultimate episode is the, is the word. Oh, the right. It's just nine. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he, he is now here and it seems like this will probably be his only appearance because he's going back to New York now, but he shows up to defend uh, the guy who's making all the suits for all the superheroes because someone's what's his name? Leapfrog his, his jet boots catch on fire or something. And so Daredevil, obviously having his suit made by this guy, uh, comes to defend him and uh, crosses paths with She-Hulk. And it was just great to see him. It was just great to see uh, Matt. <laughs> hey, Murdoch. buddy. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> Long time no see. <laughs> I mean, really, what, like, it's just like, oh, yeah, he's still got it. Like, it's like not a moment has passed. He's got his, like, low cadence and he comes in all matter of fact, but still a little more elevated than normal. You're in on is what I would call because Matt Murdock has been in the MCU, yes. but this is Daredevil's first proper yep. MCU bout. So do you think that they sort of struck the right balance and tone here? Or Yeah, I think so. Like Daredevil cracks a little bit of jokes in the Netflix series. Like it's a little more edgier and it's a little more like no one else is really laughing when he cracks a joke, but like it's still, it has some fun to it. And Daredevil in the comics and every other piece of media is and is a little light he's not like Ooh, catholicism and stuff like <laughs> right i mean are any of them in fucking marvel except the villains at this point punisher maybe yeah, since he's probably the only murder, one but, yeah but uh see punisher lighting up like an open mic night no no <laughs> and, and daredevil's like quips are not like uh-oh like he's right behind me isn't he like that you know stereotype like he's just like you tried to whoop my ass. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. And he's a little more smiley. And I think it's because he's in love kind of. Uh, but uh, it, seeing him show up as Matt Murdock was great. And then when we see him as Daredevil flipping around, doing cool shit, like the parking garage starts to like crack underneath his feet. And he does something to catch himself and then like flip himself back up. Uh, I thought that was awesome. And then the hallway fight makes a return as always trademark daredevil thing now um and you know he's not making people bleed necessarily but he's whipping ass and well I was it like, was a wink and nod subversion i wouldn't right. say it necessarily return now b you said you tweeted that this is your third favorite disney plus series fourth favorite honestly can't even remember what i put in the <laughs> rankings but i i really like hi yeah, hi yeah hi i really really like she hulk and you know to echo what Cade's saying I loved Daredevil's introduction here. I, I thought the chemistry between the actors and characters was phenomenal. It was twofold because both Jen and Matt Murdock as kind of legal opponents verbally sparring had great chemistry. And then both She-Hulk and Daredevil had uh, amazing chemistry, both in their, in their kind of friendly rivalry type of fight. Uh, so I, I just thought it was sparkling, kind of. The, the dialogue, the feel, it was sexy, you know, it was funny. I, I really was into it. So Probably I agree. Maybe my favorite episode of the whole season so far. Yeah. But like, yeah, is that the problem though? No, because I really like it. I think it's, it's I, been 
really enjoyable and humorous throughout. And I love how they're kind of uh, giving us a, a really straight sitcom. You know, it's not really think, a Marvel show. Yeah, I, I don't think it's like because Daredevil, right? Like, I think that's like oh, an come added on. factor. Come it on. Is. It's like he's he's a great addition. At the end of the day, she's but, not fucking some random guy. She's fucking Daredevil. Yeah, that's sure. what makes it fun. It is. But the it's it's consistent with the rest of the show, in my opinion. It's not like the whole show has been like, oh, come on, get Daredevil. It's like, it's an, it's like a cherry on top of an already great show. Like, I, I've been very vocal. I don't think the Disney Plus shows are very good. But this show has been I think I, I like, think a lot of people have as well. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so to have something that I'm like, I enjoy tuning into this, and it doesn't feel like a fucking chore to watch. It, it and then doesn't, having it doesn't. Daredevil You're, show up is like, oh, it's like I'm rewarded for enjoying something. It's just like, it's great. So just on the topic of tone, when I saw the trailer or like the teaser released prior to when this drop, featuring that scene of him showing up and doing the flips, I was very worried because it was mm-hmm. pretty jarring because you don't have the context of Matt Murdock and um, what's her real Jen. name? Jen's interaction prior to that. So going in, I was like, oh, man, they have really sort of caught our boy at the knees here and made him sort of like the classic sort of jokey, funny, haha MCU hero. With the added context of their previous flirtation, it totally made more sense. Yeah. So I'm in on the tone in that part. But is that the Daredevil show that I want to see? No. Is that the Daredevil show that I expect to see? Of course not. Which I think makes it more impressive that they're showing versatility in the way that Daredevil is going to be perhaps used. Now, that doesn't mean I think the interpretation is perfect. I think the gold-tinged suit is horrible. Yeah, I'm not I, I think that, and I understand that it's a comic-based thing, but I think B... Oh, no, yeah, it suit sucks. I was just shaking oh. my head. And, I, I've always been someone I've said on this spot a million times. I don't care about like comic accurate suits. Yeah. I think there's a reason they change most of them because most of them look ridiculous. And, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. I don't, and yeah, sometimes it is cool seeing comic accurate. Like, oh, wow, that's what I grew up with. But at the end of the day, like more often than not, I'm like, that's really silly and doesn't really seem to fit when you translate mediums. Exactly. And so my disagreement with it is not so much the literal color of it, but the character that's wearing it. Daredevil is the only Batman-esque character in the MCU where he could pop up behind you in total silence and you shit your pants. Mm -hmm. And that should be a very terrifying experience. But seeing him do it, and in the hallway scene, they use sort of a very aggressive blue lighting, so it's nullified, which I guess fixes the problem a bit. Mm -hmm. But I just think it makes what is supposed to be and inherently, if not terrifying, like, I mean, the name devil is in his name. So there is supposed to be an element of fe- he's, he His nickname is the man without fear. Fear is incorporated into his whole pathos. So for him to look like Ronald McDonald in a superhero costume, <laughs> I think is so incongruent with what the character should be. And there's a reason that the comic book artist changed his suits over the years. It undercuts what makes the character effective and i want to be fascinated to see if the suit remains in the show so let's talk about the hallway fight in general i thought it was a i haven't really decided if it's a clever subversion or a pulling out the rug from under beneath me yet how did y'all feel about the quote-unquote hallway scene which is which if you guys don't know is an homage to every daredevil season one through three had sort of a one take of Daredevil taking on multiple opponents in a narrow hallway. 
She-Hulk did that a bit, but then when they squared up the camera to be like, all right, we're doing it, we're doing it, She-Hulk comes crashing in. So, Cade, B, thoughts? I liked it enough. Like, I, I didn't feel like I was robbed of anything because I, I didn't go in expecting that. Like, you know, like, I'm like, that's a Daredevil thing, not a She-Hulk thing. So I was like, to tease it a little bit and be like, we know what you want, and maybe this isn't the place to do it. Like, I feel like Marvel is aware, right? And they're probably going to do that in the actual show. And that's fine by me. I didn't mind Dare, uh, She-Hulk crashing into the ceiling and just fucking slamming these guys through the floor. But um, I, I think just generally speaking in terms of his action, like he's going around just like kicking people in the face and just like hitting them really hard. And I'm like, and you're still working in like the layers of like a pretty soft pg-13 uh, in terms of the action yeah so and and i i can't imagine they have like really good fight choreographers on this show just based on what we've already seen like that that episode where those like big bat things are flying around she's like flinging them around so i'm not like expecting the best of the best here um but they seem to be aware people want to see daredevil whipping ass and like in an effective manner and so that's enough for me to to hear that message yeah, I think it's fan service done well. It's a, a wink and a nod. Which you something. love. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I, I think fan, I don't like fan service in general. I, I think it has to be done. Right, uh, no, no, I'm saying you love it specifically when it's done well. Yeah, and I, I think it's very well modulated because like I said, it's a, it's a wink and a nod to something we all know without even remotely trying to approach or top or copy or duplicate what had come before because they're like, listen, we get it. This mm-hmm. is awesome. This is intrinsic to the character. We're not even going to make the attempt here. But, you know, you can get a nice little laugh at it. And there can be a nice character dynamic interplay within that joke between She-Hulk and Daredevil. So I think it was done really well. And, you know, again, I'm not necessarily watching She-Hulk for the action. Yeah. And I fully expect Daredevil born again. But you just said the Daredevil episode was your favorite one yeah but that has nothing to do with the, the fight scenes necessarily okay. like I, okay. I really like these but okay. it was my favorite because of like the character building the, the relationships the the huge sense of humor not because like oh you know they, they tag team some goons or or henchmen it has the debate raged on <laughs> so i think the next big point is and Cade, you and i both sent out tweets about this b you may well have but i didn't catch it superheroes are fucking in the yeah. MCU, it's back. I think that this is the sexiest scene in the MCU since Winter Soldier, where Scarlett Hansen and Chris Evans are on the uh, escalator. And that was, what, 2014? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's been a long... And I'd also say 2014 is also the year that Guardians of the Galaxy 1 came out, and right. Chris Pratt's Star-Lord like literally woos Gamora throughout the course of that film. But I think since then romance and sex has largely been MIA from the MCU as a whole. I enjoyed it, A, because it's just fun, right? Like, we're all adults here. It Mm -hmm. is most adults' primary goal in life, other than, like, paying the (laughs) bills and, like, other than, like, you know, having a job and surviving, like, you're probably thinking about sex. So I think the acknowledgement of it is, and then we'll talk about Werewolf at Night next, but I think that you know, these sort of after a year of people really thinking, yo, is the MCU on its way to being washed? Like, are we watching a one star QB in his last final days? But in a weird way, some of their more low key projects, She-Hulk, Werewolf by Night, have shown a creativity that made the franchise great in the first place. 
And as Neanderthal asks, as it may be, the basic acknowledgement of sex is that for me. I'm like, oh, wow. They're acknowledging that not only are these adults, but all of them are remarkably attractive mm-hmm. and they want to fuck each other. And mm-hmm. I just think that it, that is just such a do I expect that to be a theme that they carry across all films and all shows? Of course not. But I do appreciate them finally starting to pick and choose their spots and understand that maybe we can make a few shows like if Moon Knight was an adult show, it would have fucking ripped. But the okay. problem with that was they tried to split the line too much. But She-Hulk is fucking Werewolf by Night was a legit horror project. So I, I, I find that to be encouraging signs. Yeah. I mean, if you have superheroes around each other all the time and they have their own problems that no one else can relate to, eventually you're going to, you know, embrace and each other. Uh, in some Especially capacity. with the comic origins of all the romances and marriages that right. exist. Love is a major part of comic books. It, they are big soap operas. Right. Right. And, exactly. Um. So to, to see that really leaning into that is, is just great. I, I Like you said, it's just a maturity thing. Like it sounds juvenile to be like, oh, I want to see sex. But no, it, it really is embracing maturity and being like, yeah, this is not necessarily just like, like a we don't need to see them fuck. No, but the implication exactly. that they exactly. did is enough. Yeah. You want to see them really handle their characters with the layers and depth, like that they have emotions and emotions include horniness. And so <laughs> that's important. At the end of the day, if there's a contingent of very vocal, loud fans out there begging to see an uncle and his niece hook up on Game of Thrones, then why can't two appropriately <laughs> non-related adults in the MCU hook up? Like, this is a no-brainer. And and the only, only saving grace of, like, Wonder Woman 2 is the unbelievable chemistry between Chris Pine yep. and Gal Gadot and, yep. and their characters. And, and to see that dynamic really, really developed and, and emphasized more in the superhero genre, I'm all for it. All right, so let's try to keep this last one to a yes or no, since I love this thought from Cade. Do you think Daredevil representing other superheroes is going to be a part of his own show? Cade? Yes. Oh, all right, B, yes. <laughs> Cade, and, and since this was your thought, if you want to expand on it a bit. We already saw him representing Spider-Man, and that's kind of where right. I was like, that's really interesting. And then we saw it here a little bit. So I think there's a chance now that he's part of the MCU and is not just limited to... Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and Iron Fist. I think there's a good chance that, I mean, who's in New York? Doctor Strange. Uh, who else is alive? I don't know. I, mean, I don't <laughs> think it really matters where they are since sure. we just saw him yeah, travel across the country. Yeah. yeah, so I think there's a, a good chance. And New York is a big battleground for the MCU. So you could just argue like, oh, it's in their jurisdiction or whatever. So I'm not a lawyer. But uh, I think there's a good chance that that does happen, yeah. All right. Uh, Yeah, so I kind of agree. I think that She-Hulk has been, and I said this at the start, and I think it remains true. As a sitcom, I'm enjoying it. As a Marvel product, I'm, you know, I just, and this is sort of like cognitive dissonance. I don't Mm. know what I want from the MCU because of my own expectations and because of what they've given me over the last 15 years and it's just become such a muddled mess but i just know that as an mcu product she hulk is not doing it for me but i am able to observe and judge these shows outside of that framework and as a sitcom and as a tv show i think it's fine so moving on to something quite different literally because it's the first time that marvel has ever done one is werewolf by night it's sort of a 55 minute long longer than a short film shorter than a 
film film. And I've already shared a lot of my thoughts on this podcast since I interviewed some of the talent behind the show. So I would love to hear Kate and B's thoughts. If you guys have any general feelings that you want to share, and then we'll dive into sort of some more nitpicky stuff. I mean, Michael Giacchino has long been one of the best composers in Hollywood. He's probably first became most famous for Lost, of which that soundtrack still, oh, to this day, it's perfection, perfection. So I've long been a fan of Michael Giacchino, and to see him make his, what I believe is his directorial debut, his, his quote-unquote feature directorial debut, even though we know it's not exactly feature length. Uh, I thought he knocked it out of the park. I think uh, the major criticism I have of Werewolf by Night is that it's simply not long enough. And so the the main character doesn't really get much of an arc that more so belongs to uh, uh, the, the female lead that he kind of teams but up with. But don't you think that that's the point? They would never make this as a film. Aren't you accounting for that? Yeah, but I also think that this originally was supposed to be longer and some behind the scenes drama, you know, ultimately resulted in it being oh. very, very short and punchy. Oh. But- Listen, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would like to see a little bit more exploration next time. But, you know, this was great. It it was so cool to kind of adopt this uh, otherworldly noir style. Uh, I I think the the color and the direction was great. Really, really effective. Uh, And I think that MCU special presentation is a great platform for, you know, quote unquote, elseworlds elsewhere stories, whatever the the, the tag is for for when DC tells kind of non-caniacal stories. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a great use. I mean, what if adjacent almost in that way? Uh, So it's pretty cool. And again, this also expands the MCU's uh, corners. I mean, Eric, you and I have talked about it. There was kind of ground level. There was cosmic. There was mystic. Now we've got like martial arts. We've got a little bit more of like the horror and spiritual from from Moon Knight. And this kind of did delves into that. Yeah, monsters and horror. So I think every time you can add a new vertical, to put it in media terms, right uh, into the MCU, it's usually a, a worthwhile endeavor. Now, Cade, quick, just before you share your thoughts, I had said when I saw the first teaser, I was like, there's no way that they're going to keep this tone. And then they do. And I think that the perfect epitome of that is when the Marvel Studios banner is unfolding and they do that sort of old school horror scare intercut with it that's just such a tiny detail that i don't want to turn into a mountain but i just think it is the perfect type of like if the mcu is a vodka soda this is like the lime right it just adds that bit of spice that bit of taste to a very bland not bland in a bad way bland and just like it's an easy to put down way so okay your general thoughts on it that was really cool uh I think everyone knows I'm really into horror uh, as a whole. And I, I really like weird horror. And this is kind of like, I mean, it's, it's Marvel. So, you know, it's not like, it's not like barbarian, but <laughs> like it wasn't scary. Uh, no, but it's like, oh yeah. Some guys doing like a monster hunt and like, they're like cultish and weird. And I'm like, this is cool. This is what I would like and what I would expect from something like this. Uh, it does kind of remind me of like old school, like Disney channel, original movies with like a little more of an edge uh, in some way. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I will say like the aesthetic of trying to make it like an old, like 1930s, forties horror movie doesn't quite land the way I want it to. I know some people Mm. have really praised it for that, but like when you have the black and white and, and music and stuff, and then you have everyone doing these cool, like flips and whatever, like black widow, I'm like, this takes me out. Like I don't get the aesthetic doesn't match 
the actual filmmaking that's happening. Uh, and it, it, I don't want to say it feels like an afterthought, but it does feel. So do you think that you would have preferred it if it was in color? I don't even know if it's that. I just would have liked them to like, and it's, it's hard because you're making something in the MCU still, but like, I would have preferred them to just kind of make it a little more like stilted. And I get, that's like a really weird stylistic choice. That's one hard to pull off. And two, is going to be something that pisses no, people off. No, but I get it. They're trying to make a 1930s, 40s horror film, yeah. but the but the set piece techniques are clearly exactly. modern. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. that's, and especially when you show stuff like that weird, like animatronic, like mummy thing that they have at the beginning. So it kind of felt like, oh, they are kind of really trying to use like real practical effects and, and really trying to lean into that stuff. Uh, and so that stuff didn't really work for me. But Again, I appreciate the whole premise. I appreciate. I think it's good, and it, that's more nitpicky. But um, I, so, I did like it. So I want to do a quick role playing game. You guys are an up and coming Marvel exec, and you've been asked to sit in the post Werewolf by Night meeting. And Kevin Feige turns to you and he asks for a sentence or a paragraph about what we should learn from this. Mm. What do you say? There's room for non traditional stories if approached from the right angle and given to talented filmmakers. Comics as a whole have multiple genres and by trying to connect everything all together, you lose the variety and creativity. And this shows that you can really lean into that and do something special. And then for me, I would say, given the streaming age that we're in, there is no need to adhere to a 30-minute-long sitcom or a a two-hour-long movie. We could do whatever the fuck we want. Or six episodes for every damn series. Right, exactly. (laughs) That is the bottom line here. All right, and then finally, (laughs) I just am curious, any characters that you would like to see feature in a special presentation, which executive producer Brian Gay told me that they're going to do more of? I'll start off. I think basically any non-Mount Rushmore X-Men would be great because those are a lot of characters to just introduce in a film. So to give them all each their sort of hour-long prologue, I think would be a great idea. And then one that I say every time that we talk about something related to what character deserves their own unique story, Dr. Doom, because I want a true anti-hero film in the MCU. Credit to DC. that what That's what they appear to be trying to do with Black Adam, based on the clips that we've seen, it seems like it's going to be Black Adam first the JSA, and then they'll eventually team up and fight some greater threat. But I want the MCU to do that. While I have my doubts that they will do a Doctor Doom film, a Doctor Doom special presentation that serves as either a prequel or sequel to Fantastic Four to sort of give him his own runway into his eventual massive MCU villain role, I think would be great. I don't know. Maybe like Howard the Duck. Like, I don't know. That'd be just like cool. Just give it a shot. See what you can right? do. Just silly and fun. Yeah. You got the runway to it. But the, the thing that came to my mind when I saw your prompt was like, there's a comic book where Deadpool kills the entire Marvel universe. And <laughs> that would just be like, fuck it. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. Just do it. And yeah, bring back all these actors for like a five minute scene where they just get <laughs> murked by Ryan Reynolds. And that's, <laughs> yeah. sick. that's a great call. That does Eight. sound fun. I obviously this character is going to be introduced in a future film within this franchise because they're too big not to, but I would love to see a silver surfer special presentation when he's off earth, not, you know, not interacting with the fantastic four, but he's being the herald for Galactus and visiting other worlds and doing some crazy cosmic stuff that we can't really comprehend. It also might be like too odd and too esoteric and also too 
removed from MCU proper to be like its own show or its own movie plot. But, you know, a quick little hour, 15 minute jog with Silver Surfer as he surfs across the, the intergalactic highways. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. And we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be breaking down House of the Dragon, Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, and we are back discussing House of the Dragon episode eight, The Lord of the Tides B. I have got to be honest, I have been stoked to talk about this with you all week because I have rewatched this episode, I don't know, three or four times. And this has been, this I truly consider to be one of the best Game of Thrones hours that I've seen. I think that it marks a high point for this series in and of itself. So before we dive in, do you have any sort of general thoughts that you want to share? Yeah, I am uh, going against the majority here. I mean, your opinion is shared by most across the film Twitterverse. I really, other than Viserys in this episode, which I know we'll get to, I thought this was so much more of the same and almost a built-in excuse for there to be another time jump that doesn't really leave us in any different position than we already were in, uh, particularly as it ter- goes to the, the factioning of the family. So I, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I was a little let down and I was surprised to see the overwhelming outpour of love, but excited to talk about it. Wow. I did not expect that take, especially considering what you quote tweeted of my tweet. I thought like, oh, wow, we're on, on the same page here. So I'm glad to hear that we'll kind of split a bit. All right, let's dive into our beat by beat breakdown. After Lord Corliss suffered a grave, but not yet fatal. And I find it interesting that they're they're like, he's dying, but he ain't dead, right? Because And I'm we're not sh- showing him. Yeah, I'm sure that it's not going to play out as simply as they would all hope. So after Lord Corliss suffered a grave, but not yet fatal wound, his brother Vaymon protests to Princess Rhaenys that he should be the heir to Driftmark because Rhaenyra's kids aren't true Valerian. Meanwhile, Damon retrieving a new dragon egg from the dragon's secret maternity ward receives word from his former whore that Viserys is on the verge of death. So he and Rhaenyra with their sons go back to King's Landing with the intention of getting Viserys to give Driftmark to Lucerys. Man, the semantical clerical errors in this family are just <laughs> exhausting. I'm tired just saying those, those same letters over and over again. And, and also just in the scope of storytelling, how often do you think we'll ever be able to say the words secret dragon maternity ward? Right. And I love the way that they show like how sort of secretive knowledge, like I don't even think most Targaryens know how to get there. The shaft that Damon has to climb down to get there is like a life or death Seriously, situation. I mean, with all the time jumps too, this dude's got to be in his 40s, right? Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, right. Because we've seen at least younger fifteen in the years of time. We, yeah, we've seen at least fifteen years of time jumps. This dude, this dude's you know treacherous. Uh, all right. So I, I think that my main takeaway from this is, and we've talked about this a few times on the show, is that the choice to make the Valerians black, I think, was so smart because this makes the idea of the crown being like, nah, sorry, this is ours now, and this is how we're doing shit, like, makes it that more poignant, right? Like. 
And Damon says it in a later scene, but he's like, just because you fucked your house up and did what you wanted doesn't mean that I'm going to let you do the same to mine. And it sucks because I agree with Vaymond in principle, but because of the societal and legal structure of the world that he lives in, him telling the truth is a death sentence. Big time. And, and I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this scene. It's just it, it, his stupidity bothered me. So we talked about Damon's sort of quest to get the dragon eggs based on your book knowledge, based on your show knowledge. Who currently, as far as you know, has the dragon advantage, as far as you could tell? Because last week, um, Team Green just landed the biggest dragon in the realm, whose name escapes me. All three of the Alicent Targaryen kids have their own dragons. We know that Damon has his dragon. Rhaenyra has his dragon. So who in your mind currently has the edge? Well, Rhaenys is on the sidelines kind of as this neutral party. So. Is she though? Because she was pretty smug when Rhaenyra tried to make a deal and she was like, tomorrow the high towers land their first blow and you're fucked. Yeah, but then we also, you know, she also comes around kind of in terms of like the, yeah. the, the, the pack. So I think that that helps. Then I'm, I'm not quite clear about Rhaenyra's Jack and, and Luke, Jason, Luke, dragon uh, yes. abilities. So so obviously because earlier they the the uh, Luce and, and Jace made fun of Amon for not having a dragon, which implies that they did have dragons. Of course, but we haven't actually seen them and the and what they're and their actual dragon. So I'm a little unclear about that right now. To Do me, you just think that that's them like a? plot device of them lying or just bad no i, I, bad I writing? Assu- i'm assuming they have dragons and we just haven't really I seen guess. them right but it seems to me that maybe uh uh team allison team hightower has the dragon advantage but like i, I would so it's team go- green and team black but i also just wouldn't want to mess with damon and on top of a dragon like that that seems to be like the mvp even if the other bench is deeper I love when we turn the show into a vague sports show. All right, next major plot beat is Otto Hightower, my boy, attempts to convince Allison to give Driftmark to Eamon before she's whisked away to deal with a maid that was raped by her son, Aegon. Allison sympathizes and understands and believes the girl b- before giving her the plan BT. Allison is, I would say, the most volatile character in this whole series not in terms of her personality but in terms of the way she can influence this entire civil war even before a dying viserys confuses the shit out of her she was such a crucial cog in this whole wheel so i find her in the six years since we've seen her finding religion in the light of the seven which based on what we saw of the power of the seven and thrones is kind of a low key, huge get not a get, but it's like, if she's, I don't know if she's doing it for her own peace or if she's doing it for militaristic purposes, but the whole red keep being decked out in seven point stars is no small thing. Yeah. I mean, one, the, uh, you know, the faith of the seven, just with like the maesters too, it's, it's pretty much centered also in old town. Like there's a, there's a big power epicenter there. So it makes sense that the high towers are there and too. I don't remember when it happens. I don't remember who did it, but in Game of Thrones, you know, Cersei arms the the faith militant, and that obviously turns out to be a huge, huge, huge mistake. 
But they say within the show, it's the first time that the faith has been armed since oh. so and so. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm, and I just, can't, I know, like, of course, I've read about it from through the wikis and the, and the books and everything. But I'm wondering, like, is it Allison and you know, and and her contingent that armed the the faith for the first time ever? Because later, then obviously they negotiate, they negotiate a de-arming in exchange for, I think, the faith of the seven becoming like the de facto country religion or something like that. And I'm thinking like, if it is Allison, like, again, you're playing with fire, but huge, huge advantage if you can I, control them. I mean, it strikes me as a very Chekhov's seven-pointed star to have the- Seven-pointed ninja star. The queen and de facto king prominently featuring their gear. Like, I feel like that Allison's commitment to them or commitment to their ideals is going to come into play in a major way at some point. And yeah, let I mean, me just say, while the thought is on my mind, George R. R. Martin said, came out and said to, in order to do the House of the Dragon, aka the Fire and Blood story, Justice, he thinks it needs four seasons of 10 episodes each. Yeah, to that point in terms of the public branding, like once you get sponsored by Coke, you can't get caught sipping a Pepsi. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I I think the the images have to lead to, to action in a lot of ways. And even let's just say, even if they're not militarized, it's still a huge political asset to have the faith on your side, particularly when, you know, the rest of the world outside the Targaryens are not huge fans of incest. Obviously, that kind of goes out the window when you look at Aegon marrying his sister. But but still, you know, it, that it, poor girl. Seriously, she deserves better. So so I, I think in terms of resources and assets and brain power, the green is a huge lead on on the black and you know, da- Damon's psychosis can only take you so far. Rainier is not a plotter. Now, B, based on your combination of distant, largely forgotten book knowledge and general Game of Thrones knowledge in relation to my point about the seven sort of being a huge player out there for someone to recruit to their side, are there any other big players that we could expect to see recruited for this war? Like are the Starks, the Lannisters, the Greyjoys? I don't have the historical Game of Thrones. I I know that the Starks generally tend to their own world up north, but I'm just using them as an example of, are there any other big mercenary houses out there that we're going to see folded into this? So obviously I don't know how the show is going to do it, but like in every major conflict, there's always opportunistic individuals who want to join a faction with the ultimate goal of increasing their house's power, wealth, and prestige. Now this is largely a Targaryen civil war, but obviously you do. But they are the rulers of yeah. the crown. So by that logic, it is a fucking yes. countrywide war. And you need manpower to fight a civil war, even when it's just, you know, largely withheld to one house. So again, through the history of, of what I know, there, there are houses that get involved and there are collateral damage that gets swept up in all of this on both sides whether or not the show wants to make that a, a focal point or just like a passing, like, Oh yeah. Well, in, in your, in your gut. I, I think it would make sense in season two to start expanding the world a little bit, not to the extent yes. perhaps that game of Thrones did because at a certain point it was too far flung. Well, cause game Thrones was out to in, whereas this yeah. feels very much into out. Exactly. I mean, I, as we discussed, I think for the first episode, like one reason why it's so much, easier to follow as as opposed to game of thrones's pilot is because game of thrones was 
I think taking place across three major locations with about 12 main characters introduced in the first episode, something like that. Whereas this was largely King's Landing, largely four or five main characters. And that is largely kept true for the entire season. Yes, they've expanded a little bit out. With the time jumps, it's been a little bit hard to always keep track. But essentially, we're still dealing with the same core group of people in the same core area. And I think it does make sense, uh, particularly as people die and everything, to start bringing in some power players from different elements of Westeros and beyond. And then before we move on to the next major plot beat, I just want to say that the director of this episode confirmed that Alicent does not have Diana poison. So when she gives her the plan BT, when Diana drinks it, gives her a very regretful, sorrowful look. And myself and a lot of people took that as, oh, wow, is she like killing her right here? The director confirmed that she's not. And that's just a regular plan BT. Yeah. And I just also want to point out quickly that, uh, Again, Allison's been put in a, a serious situation, and I did have sympathy for her earlier on. But she's essentially now uh, uh, gaslighting a rape victim of her sons to protect her family. Like she, nobody is worth rooting for. I took that as tough love to woman on woman. Like she I mean, was I like, "Hey, I might." believe you in this private room of us two but all the disgusting people out there are gonna judge you based on hearsay and i just took that as her giving her the hard truth that girl expected the queen to have her like killed it doesn't matter what the expectations were it doesn't matter what if if she's telling the truth but she is she that is a, a true statement what matters is she's saying it to ultimately make sure it stays in-house and to protect her family and she has no no, no. But if she wanted the ultimate insurance, she'd just kill her. But she's too good to. I, I'm not going to give her points for not killing an innocent. In the Game of Thrones yeah, world, not, as a I'm queen, not, I'm not giving her giving her points for that. She's you're giving, me. but but no, you're but you're basing it on a scale of our society. No, even even back then, like you, you can handle things with a, a certain grace, and she has. <laughs> I don't know if I agree, but okay. She doesn't go ahead. Wanna even. She's basically mad at Aegon for exposing the family to potential uh, criticism, not for him raping a girl. I disagree entirely. He, she says you're no son of mine, not because of political goals, because she's disgusted by him. I, I don't know. I, I think she's she's calcified on the throne, which is a commentary in and of itself. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on to the next big plot beat is Rhaenyra and Damon reunite with Viserys for the first time in six years and introduce him to his namesake grandson while also telling him that he must reaffirm his position backing Lucerus as the heir of Driftmark. Alicent, fresh off of reaming Aegon for raping a poor girl, greets Damon and Rhaenyra who question her over Viserys' state and her role in the kingdom. Uh, so I think that makes Damon a funkle. Because he's a father and an uncle to that kid all at the same time. <laughs> right? I'm not I'm not familiar with the ins and outs of incest family triage, but I'm <laughs> just gonna take you at your word for it. I think he's a fun guy. I, I, I think uh, this is the start of Viserys's tour de force. Dude, you this is why I need you back on the show full time. <laughs> because you just took the words out of my mouth. This is the, the starting point of 
what is, and we'll talk about this later. And I'm trying not to be a prisoner of the moment and recency bias, which you actually recently tweeted about, right? Yes, sir. Just long story short, we are all guilty of it, myself included, but recency bias is really, really, really hard to shake. And when we talk about both strategies of entertainment companies that take a long time to play out, or we're ranking our favorite shows or movies in the MCU or, or what have you, we often are leaning towards the things that we most recently consumed or, or judging them and weighting them more heavily than we would the things that are farther off in our memory. And, it, and it's really hard to shake ourselves of that. Now, that does not mean, though, that in the case like this, it isn't warranted because th this is Viserys' flu game, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, look, while you struggle with recency bias, something that my head rubs against all the time, and we've talked about this, is confirmation bias. Yeah. Going into something knowing I love this character or I love this actor, and then my opinion being based off of that. So I went into this being a huge fan of Patty Constantine from The Outsider, from Hot Fuzz, from the litany of things I've seen him in. You've been talking about long before this show. Long before. Yeah. Long before. Long before. Because he is one of those Brendan Gleeson-esque English-Irish actors who aren't named brands, but whenever they pop up in something, you're like, fuck yeah. You're just <laughs> like, fuck yeah. So him getting this role, this starring role in a Game of Thrones series, I always knew that like he's getting his due, right? It's about goddamn time. So confirmation bias aside, I think that this scene is, and you put it out in a great tweet. I wasn't in on the Viserys arc until they tied it up in a loop this week. I found it very uh, disconnected and stop and start and distant. But the way that they wrapped it up this week crystallized the entire arc in such a way that I find Patty Considine's Viserys to be up there with one of the great all-time Thrones performances that we've ever seen. Some that come to mind are Danny, Stannis. I mean, Peter Dinklage won four Emmys for Dinklage. For but, yeah, but so I, he's got to be nominated. He has to be nominated. Uh, so do you agree with the statement that Patty's season one run is up there with some of the greatest Game of Thrones performances that we've seen? And do you have any favorites that jump to mind? I mean, Tyrion, Peter Dinklage is, is, of course, probably my favorite. I mean, Ned Stark did a great job. Arya, you know, Maisie Williams, a girl who never acted before Game of Thrones, just come in as, as one of the most naturalistic performers of all. I think Kit Harington starts a little wobbly and just vastly improves by the time we get to the end of Thrones. So there's a lot of really good performances out there. And I think within House of the Dragon, you know, Matt Smith's Damon is the flashy character because he's all sneering, snide, uh, you know, psychotic, chaotic energy. And, and right. that's, he's, that's he's set up to be the sort of leading yeah. man, except for the intense murder and incest. You yeah. know, he's sort of the prototypical Exactly. Hero. But as George R. R. Martin had said, uh, Patty Considine infuses Viserys with this tragic majesty that his book counterpart never had. And, and George R. R. Martin, I think, said today, too, or or this weekend, he wants to go back and rip up the chapters and rewrite them now that he has Patty Considine's version in mind. And I think as much as I kind of, you know, have, have my my issues with George R. R. Martin, there's there's probably no higher compliment than the creator himself being like, oh, you, you did better than you I fucking, did. You, you made this better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so real quick. He's got to be nominated. 
before we move on to the next stanza, they Damon mentions the triarchy again. Now, last week I had asked you, is this some sort of White Walker-esque threat that's going to loom over the show? You had said that it's just going to be sort of a plot device to sort of inspire conflict within the main characters. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, I mean, if they ever did became become such a huge threat and the Targaryens united, they have like nine dragons. You know, you're just not winning against that. It's, it's going to be a clean sweep. It's going to be okay. San Antonio versus the, the Cleveland Cavaliers 4-0 or, championship. Or the fucking Nets. That's back <laughs> in the day. Uh, yeah, all right. These are both dated references. Yeah, right. We are now closing on 30. Sucks I am us. 30, man. It's horrible. You are 30. You yeah. are 30. That sucks for you. <laughs> it's awful, dude. I hate it. All right. Uh, next stanza. Eamon trains with and beats Sir Kristen while Rhaenyra attempts to make a bargain with Princess Rhaenys to solidify their power, and then also has a late-night conversation with her father about the Song of Ice and Fire. Then we get to sort of the big set piece of the episode of the season. Determined to make things right, Viserys makes his way to the throne room, ending Otto's kangaroo court and bequeathing Driftmark to Lucerys. Damon flips shit, calls R- Rhaenyra's kids bastard. Vaymond, who is Lord Corlys's brother, Flip shit, calls Rhaenyra's kids bastards and loses his head. <sighs> B, this was, I know that I love something when I want to watch it over and over again and think about it and feel about it. And this entrance and this walk across the throne room and this speech from Patty Considine's Viserys was truly Shakespearean, right? It is legitimately one of the most emotional and stirring moments I could remember in the last 10 plus years of Thrones. It is a man poisoned by this very room and this very seat making one last paint on the edge of his life trip through that very space in order to save his own family. And I was just not on the verge of tears. Game of Thrones has never made me cry. But if there was ever a thematic motif that got me close, it's this, man. Shed tears when uh, Brienne was knighted in the last season. Okay. I, I absolutely shed tears in okay. that. Okay, great. And, great uh, shout. And so I, I think the walk is great. The The moment with Damon is just so well Improvised, this time. Yeah. by the way completely mistake that he dropped the crown. It just turns out to be such a great moment. I think it's undercut a little bit by how absolutely idiotic Veyman is, particularly being Corliss's brother. Corliss is someone who's navigated not only the seas, but the choppy waters of politics quite well overall. But let me just say, isn't the literal walk across the room long enough? There's enough breathing space between those two. Yeah, that's a great moment. But then, you know, I like his speech at the dinner table more than I like this. But yeah, I, that that walk, the man mustering courage to defend his what he thinks is right. Oh, God, it, it is, as George R. R. Martin said, is tragic majesty. And, and I think he's got to know deep down this is the last time he'll sit the throne. Now, you aren't. So you took the sort of counterpoint of that. You actually don't think that this is a high point and you aren't as blown away by. No, I said I, I love the Viserys stuff in this episode. All okay, so but what I'm going to say is, do you agree that this is a high point for the series so far? And then furthermore, do you think that this counts as one of the great, you know, not top five, but one of the top thrones moments of all time? I think his walk to the throne and his speech at the dinner table and like the next scene, those are my, my two favorite parts of this episode and, to, and two of the best you know, character-driven moments of, of the season. 
Okay. All right. Then moving on to that note later that night at dinner. I just, Kane... sorry, I just want to quickly go back. I'm sorry, but how does Veyman let Damon bait him into just an absolute death sentence? You know what? You're right. We absolutely need to talk about the guy getting his head cut in half. Look, it's just I so mean, avoidable. But I think he realizes that he's in a losing spot. And I think he would rather go out on his shield than... But that's idiotic because you can go back to Driftmark and and regroup and and plan. You can do stupid. Yes, agreeably stupid. Absolutely. It's just, it made no sense. And like, you know, Damon is trying to bait you. Also, why turn your back on it? At at least like put up a, a, try to put up a fight and be, it it was just so radically dumb. And I think there for there to be this huge, dramatic, crazy moment that is also badass and shocking. But like it just so rings so hollow to me on like the stupidity intelligence scale. No, I'm on the same page. I will just say that I love how the VFX team made it so the cl- cut was right above his tongue. That was yeah. just so gnarly. That, All was, right, that so was well done. Later that night at dinner, Kang Viserys gives a moving speech about reuniting the family before departing them for one final time. While the parents take his words to heart, the children don't and continue to squabble. B, you said that you enjoyed this scene the most, so... Again, it's because of Viserys and God, it is so utterly nobly sad. You know, he's like, see me as I am, as he takes off his mask and reveals his. Which is a parallel to Rhaenyra telling Alison as she holds the knife to her neck. Now they see you as you are. Yes. And I I would also say, too, that it's a a nice kind of counterpoint to uh, for Damon when he's, you know, mutilates the crab feeder who's you know the other kind of mask wearing spectacle in this show and that is kind of uh, an anger and hatred and this is a taking off of a mask for someone who also looms large in his life in this moment of extreme vulnerability and and in a way power you know he's been ineffectual and he and he he tried his best to kind of appease a lot of people rather than maybe lead with some strength but he is drawing every last ounce of strength and reaching into the depth of his own soul to try to heal this schism within his own family. Because he knows, as he says, it's not only what it's needed for the realm, but it'll just break this old man's heart if Plus you don't the, do and, it. And just, and just the way that he says it, like the, the sort of graceful acceptance, like, yo, I'm on the way out. Like, I'm an old man. I he, had have... this, he had this disarming self-deprecation. He's like, I'm no longer a handsome man if I ever even was. And imagine you know, like, having that sort of humor while you're literally dying. <laughs> it, it, there's just some, there is something noble about Viserys. And- what do you mean? Of course there is. Because in a universe of people willing to sacrifice their own blood for power, this man was the opposite. And he bent over backwards to appease those he loved at the sacrifice of a stable realm. And that is what's noble about him. And that is why I love this fucking character. And it's true, but he's the boy. also setting up the, the realm to be completely chaotic. Right. But is that, but okay, but that is sort of the ultimate Game of Thrones debate, right? At what point are you willing to sacrifice true. your soul for this ultimately endless power struggle? And Viserys, look, was he a great king? No, but was he a great man? I think he was. Okay. Did he impregnate like a 13-year-old girl? Yes. But as I say a lot, within the context of medieval times, it's not like that was the way that we think about it today. So that excluded, he strikes me in a Ned Stark way of, and in the same way that we've talked about on the show in our real political worlds, 
I think politically, they're all out to fuck us. So I try to scope out their quality of character. And Viserys, for all of his political and strategical shortcomings, was a good man. And I'm always going to be attracted to that. I don't think he should be mentioned in the same breath as Ned Stark in terms of honor. No, not, I also in, don't ter- think- not in terms of heroic honorability, but in not, terms but of not even decency. Ned that hero- heroic. But in terms of decency, in terms of pure decency, he was, I think he was decent enough for sure. But I, I think what this this episode does so so well in the moments that I do like is particularly at this dinner table, it's really seen through the guise of his failing heart and his pain that he harbors because his family is, you know, on the brink of collapse. And yet that is a springboard, a launching pad for the larger conversation and thematic exploration of a divided nation, a power struggle, how, you know, the the lust for control can destroy a bloodline. Yet again, it's through his lens, his personal emotional lens of a of a grandfather, a father, a brother and a and a leader trying to make sure everyone's in the best position possible as he departs this world. So that was really well done. I just think on an overarching level, this was a recreation kind of of last week where it's like, okay, we have serious schisms where people aren't getting along. There's really bad blood between everyone. And ultimately we don't exit this, this episode having gotten any real new information. It's just, everyone's a little bit older. Uh, we do though. Allison now has the song of ice and fire. Sure, but but that only puts her back into the position she was at the beginning of this episode. I want the throne. I want my family to continue in power. Does she want the throne? Yes. Okay. She she sits on it like she's damn comfortable. I mean, I think she's her dad's pawn, but at the end of the day, but she she wants what what's still best for her family, and and at the end of the day, there's a a momentary reprieve momentary armistice between the two families. And then we're right back where, where we kind of started. So I, I just felt there was a lot of throat clearing. I think some of the age ups will be good though. Amon, even back, you know, an episode ago, Aegon is, is a little fuck boy who cares not about honor or, 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 or duty or familiar responsibility. He just wants to drink and, and hit on women and now sexually assault women. Whereas even as a, as a kid before his eye, his eye incident, Amon seemed like he was more, worldly. He was a little bit about the duty. He's like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do uh, within the context of my family. And now he's far more equipped and badass to to do those things. So he, even more so than Aegon, seems to be, you know, positioned well for the throne in a, in a sense. And then final point on this sort of last family dinner is that the eventual Damon Amund fight is going to be sick. But I'm also kind of worried, like, unless... Damon's skills have improved over the last few years. Eamon is the better fighter via the transitive property because Kristen Cole beat Damon in a joust during probably Damon's prime. And now Eamon as like a 20 year old is kind of sunning Cole. So like, while I'm excited for it, I'm also like Let's very worried that. about well, it. Cause I think there's a little bit difference between fighting in the tourney grounds and having a little sparring session in the, in the training grounds within the red keep. I don't know if okay. either is going a hundred percent, but, but I don't know, you know, clearly Eamon is a physical threat clearly. And there's awesome. an obvious like aesthetic parallel between those two, right? Definitely. And I, okay. I just want to shout out. Cause I, I, again, I still can't remember his name, but I mentioned it last episode that the guy playing adult Eamon was a good actor. I had seen something else. And with one eye, 
patched up. Still, he shifts his gaze slowly at that dinner. And I'm like, oh, I feel the power. Yeah. I feel the emotion <laughs> behind that one-eyed shifting gaze. All right, final uh, plot beat. In his final moments, confusing Allison for Rhaenyra, King Viserys tells his wife about the Song of Ice and Fire, therefore mistakenly leading her to believe that it's up to her to unite the kingdom under Aegon's rule. You blew it! (laughs) All right, so as I tweeted... I am absolutely sick about seeing Viserys fumble the ball at the one-yard line after mounting an extraordinary fourth-quarter comeback, all down to a lack of situational awareness and poor clock management. My man, A, needs to know who he's talking to, and B, knows that he's on his last breath before he goes spewing out all of this volatile information. I will say on my sort of classic Eric emotional beat, the visual of him dying on his own and like reaching out and calling for his the love of his life absolutely got me. I think that there is nothing really to delve into, at least from my point of view, about the sort of obviousness of how silly it is that this is all down to the fact that they all have the same fucking names. But B, what is your take on this final scene here? Man, Viserys is, is just, oh, he had a tough go of it. For someone who's king, you know, and, and is better off than 99.9% of the entire realm, he had a really tough go of it. And I'm glad that he, he gets a little bit of peace, uh, both from his, his illnesses and from the pressures of, of you know, run, ruling the kingdom. And in an alternate world, I would have loved to have seen happier and healthier Viserys had the small council the great council chosen Rhaenys uh, to lead in, in after Jaehaerys. Cause I think, I think that Viserys lives a, a fuller life. All right. Then B, unless you have any final thoughts, we'll move on to a song of rising and falling. Sounds good. All right. Everybody's favorite category of the week. And perhaps in the history of the post credit podcast, a song of rising and falling, <laughs> who are you rooting for this week? Brandon, you're number three. I'm going to go with lineage because the whole theme so far of game of Thrones is that these kids for the most part, don't really want to be involved in these games. You know, uh, Aegon says he's not going to challenge Rhaenyra because he doesn't really care. He just likes being a rich fuck boy. Uh, Luce, when he's talking to Corlys during Lena's funeral, says, I don't want to inherit Driftmark because that means more of my family has died. And yet the parents, the older ones, are the ones that push them into the game of thrones and make their lives more dangerous than they have to be because it is their ambition or fears and insecurities that are driving this. So, you know, now we've seen these kids grow up, they're really stuck in the same cycle. So you have to hope and and wonder and pray that eventually there is a generation that is able to break the cycle, much like what Danny wanted to do and failed miserably at. Wow. So once again, B and I are somewhat on the same train of thoughts, but a bit divergent. This was my number two. I'm going to move it down to number three so we could talk about it at the same time. My number three thing that I am rooting for right now is for all of the adults to live as long as possible <laughs> because the entirety of the next generation, particularly Amund and perhaps excluding Luceris, seems absolutely reprehensible. Yeah. The kids are way worse than the adults what the fuck are you talking about all right listen next is the adults fault but like what's done is done they yeah what's done is done but they all had a chance you know particularly when they were younger to allison isn't that old she's only like 30 35 years old Uh, yeah but she's terrible too whoa i see wow i think that the kids are the fucking like the villains of the show i think they're all villains (laughs) 
All right, B, Song of Rising and Falling, your number two thing, entity, person, plot line that you are rooting for right now. Uh, I, I think I'm rooting for baby Viserys because his namesake had a tough go of it. His family is on the verge of civil war. Like that kid is born into a really, really bad situation despite being rich and wealthy and, and powerful. Like does that baby make it out of babyhood? I don't know. <laughs> Well, my number two also has to do with Viserys. It has to do with the adult dead one and not the baby one. And that is I am rooting for a peaceful afterlife for Viserys Targaryen because that guy basically died for like 15 years, which seems pretty terrible. And then Slash for Patty Considine to win an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor because Best Actor is reserved for our boy Bob Odenkirk. B, the number one character, person, place, thing, verb, et cetera, et cetera, that you are rooting for in the house of the dragon world right now is i am rooting for the dragons actually <laughs> which seems weird i just ever i've said this before every single time they're on screen i'm just like god dragons are so fucking cool <laughs> and they are and that's really cool but they're also so inherent not only to old valyria but to this era of game of uh, of of yeah the game of thrones history and so important in their absence to like the health and the good of the realm that i just think they're unbelievable for set pieces and so cool as political assets and, and kind of blue chip prospects that, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to see all of them die in the Dance of Dragons. All right. And my number one in a song of rising and falling who I'm rooting for this week is Otto Hightower. Look, oh, shocker. Tough, it was a tough week for Team Green, but I'm dug in at this point and I've just got to fucking ride it. And look, I have known from the start, this is not going to be a a week by week winner, but this is, you know, there was a week that he got fired. There was a week that he was not on the show entirely. So this is more of a long play, bad week for team green. They lost Driftmark, Not great, but I do have faith in Otto because Viserys is dead. He seems like the most shrewd one prepared to pass on that. And I'm excited to see how Corliss comes back. I, I would yeah. be surprised if, if like they open next week and he's like, Oh, he's dead. I would be right. surprised. Yeah. All right. With that, that is the end of this week's episode. Thank you, as always, to my boy, Cade, for joining me as co-host. Thank you to Brandon, our halfway house of a co-host, for joining me. Follow Brandon at great underscore Catsby and see all the good work he's doing at Parrot Analytics. Follow Cade at Cade underscore Onder and all of his work at comicbook.com. Follow me at Eric Italiano and at Pod. Keep an eye out for our interview with the one and only The Rock. I will pipe in some if you some And we will talk to you guys next week. Peace. Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs>